0: For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. From the first epistle of St. Peter, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The readings for this morning overlay each other in a very interesting way. From the medieval period, it has been the habit of the church to read the gospel accounts of the Lord's temptation in the wilderness on the first Sunday of Lent. The idea is we're about to enter into 40 days in the wilderness, so let's read about that. There's wisdom in that. But here are added texts from Genesis 9 containing the covenant of the Lord with Noah and his sons, an everlasting covenant. And the text from 1 Peter 3, which alludes to the salvation of eight human beings, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives through the covenant waters covering creation, prefiguring and corresponding to the sacrament of baptism, which Peter says is an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The church church teaches us, not only only in the tradition, but also in the Holy Scriptures as a whole, or one might say firstly, in the Holy Scriptures as a whole, that that baptism joins us, body and soul, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes to uh, the church in Rome, for as many of you who are baptized into Christ, were baptized also into his death, and therefore into his resurrection. And it is not merely this baptismal joining of the human person to Jesus, but the faith which is sown forth in it. The faith in which the world, the flesh, and the devil are spurned. And the faith in which Jesus Christ, incarnate, crucified, risen, and ascended to the right hand of the Father is indeed central. If you've seen a baptism at Christ church as we had last week, uh, you'll note that that the, the baptismal candidates face to the doors of the church, to the west, where they renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil, and then they turn to the risen Christ. Actually, in the Eastern Church, you're supposed to renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil, and then spit, which is always fun. But you'll note something today in Peter's uh, word to the church, that there's a kind of reckoning of a typological corollary the old being shown forth in the new, or in fact, the new being shown forth in the old. And the type is none other than Jesus Christ, who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It is not that the Paschal event points us to Noah, but that the events of the flood and Noah's place in it point us to Jesus. Jesus. The spirits in prison to which Christ preaches are precisely those who did not obey in the times of Noah when only eight persons were drawn out of the water. They are those who drowned. This drawing out of the deadly waters points to how it is that Jesus Christ was raised up from the the grave and gate of death. And how it is that you and I today are incorporated into that death and resurrection. How it is even that those who did not obey in the days of Noah are raised up out of that watery death. Uh, Several years ago, when we first came to Christ Church, um, I had the good good joy of baptizing our daughter Beatrix by immersion out at Live Oak School. And uh, some of you were horrified by that. And I would apologize, except that it made the theological point for me. Because you looked and you said, you're going to kill your child. And I said, hopefully not. But at the same time, hopefully. Baptism is a death. A death to sin. A death to the old life. To be raised up with Christ. To newness of life. And the church fathers did not miss the fact that Jesus, soon after being baptized, taking on what is to Him both the life which He has always had and a new life, Goes out into the wilderness where He was tempted by Satan with the wild animals, with angels ministering to Him for 40 days. It is as though Jesus Himself is the new ark of salvation. It is as though Jesus Himself is the new Noah riding out a storm of temptation upheld by the angels. That He Himself is the vehicle for a new creation. Furthermore, as I noted on the Feast of the Baptism, the baptism of Jesus is an epiphany. The heavens are rent open. The Holy Spirit is revealed. And in a very real way, the curtain between heaven and earth is torn open. And what do we see but an image of the Trinity? In the same way in the days of Noah, the heavens were rent open and water fell upon the earth. We see from all of this that in Jesus, the nations of the earth will be saved from the death and destruction of sin. We see that where before God used water to wipe out human life, now God will use water to restore it and renew it. To renew the face of the earth by His Holy Spirit. Where before the animals were kept separate, now truly, the Lamb lays down with the lion. Jesus Christ goes out into the wilderness, into the chaos of sin, into a place of death, deliberately to draw Satan out into the open field of battle, and there he has the victory. It's all too easy to look at these texts and say, Jesus goes out there, and oh poor Jesus, he's so tempted. St. Thomas Aquinas actually draws us to consider how it is that Jesus goes out into the wilderness to go do battle against Satan. And in this we see that this temptation in the wilderness and the desolation which we see in the journey through Lent, these 40 days, the agony in the garden which Jesus will find, the agony of the cross, are not separate events, but parts of the whole. Jesus entering into the desolation of human life to bind the One who left it desolate. When Satan is bound, says St. Irenaeus, man is set free. It is by these events that we recognize that Satan is an apostate, a fugitive from the living Word of God. And the Lord binds him up, arrests him, and makes a spoil of his goods those who have been held captive in death. You and I were taken into captivity And by the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been released. From all of this, it is made manifestly clear that the salvation which is offered in Jesus Christ is not a salvation that is merely spiritual. Jesus does not sort of hole up in some room of prayer and sort of try to transcend His body and be tempted only in the Spirit by Satan. But it is a salvation of both body and soul. For it is both in the body as well as the soul that Jesus triumphs. I remember some years ago when we were writing the catechism, uh, some bishops provided us with, a, with an alternate uh, take in which they described the difference between spiritual life and spiritual death. And though it was quite well written, uh, we had to reject it because the death which we, face as Christ- which we face in this world is not just a spiritual death, is it? It's a physical one as well. The kind of corruption which enters into us because of sin does not just corrupt the soul, but also corrupts the body. When Peter says that Jesus Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, and here he's speaking about all through his life, and not just all through his life, but being made put to death on the cross, and being made alive in the Spirit in His resurrection, that thing which we look forward to during this season, he does not mean that the body has been set aside or that Christ has been made pure Spirit, but that both have been raised up in the way that Paul puts it. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, he says, there is also a spiritual body. Beloved, this is both a promise for the future in the resurrection of the dead, that doctrine so neglected today. I mean, we all must remember that, that our fate as human beings is to be buried in the ground, to be taken up in death. And someday be raised bodily. Just as Jesus was raised bodily. But it's not just a future reality that we look forward to. It's also a present reality. That the Christian, that you and I being baptized have died and we have been made alive with Christ. We have been added already to the risen body of Jesus. And we are now a people to whom angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected. Satan has been bound and we have been set free. Satan has been defeated and we are more than conquerors. We have been won back at so great a price who were once held captive to death and hell. And you might say, well, Father Nelson, that's all well and good, but I still have sins that I struggle with, and I have good news for you today. You might say, Father Nelson, that's, that's wonderful news, and I believe all of that. But I just can't give this one thing up. Or I suffer because of sin. Or I'm sick because of sin. Or I'm just plain sick. And I don't know what to do about it. Today I want to call to your attention just two important things. There are so many other things that could be spoken of, but just two important components of this teaching. The first is this. That in the battle against sin and death, the battle which Jesus goes out into the desert to wage, in the trials of sanctification which are ours, which is no easy road, We have an Advocate with the Father in Jesus Christ who has conquered sin and put death to flight. And the second thing that I want to draw attention to this morning is the glorious inheritance that is ours as members of His one body of Christ. The glorious inheritance that is ours as members of His living church. To the first. Lent is about the renewal of repentance that began for us in baptism when we renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil and turn towards a new center of gravity, Jesus Christ the Lord. If we once renounce those things and continue to renounce them, we should expect that they will attack and tempt us. The world offers us a place to belong. A place to find success and identity. Or I should say, success and identity. I hate air quotes, but I'll do it for that. But the Christian belongs in Christ. The Christian finds much more than success and identity in Christ. The Christian finds holiness of life, the glory of God, and the true meaning that is at the heart of being made in the image of God. A wholeness found in the presence of God. And it is here that almsgiving, these gifts to the poor, the gifts to the orphan and widow are so important in Lent. They express conversion with regard to the world. The world no longer being a world unto itself, but rather the place our neighbor inhabits. A neighbor who deserves our mercy and help. almsgiving is a wonderful, wonderful thing to take up in Lent. If all you've thought thus far in Lent is, what am I giving up for Lent? Think about what you're going to take on in terms of giving. In addition to your giving to the church, giving to the poor. Then we have that wonderful albatross around our necks, the flesh. The flesh so often cries out, feed me. I'm thinking here of a Little shop of horrors. Feed me, Seymour. Feed my lusts. Feed my hungers. Feed my desires. We are so often under the idea that so long as I'm well fed, well watered, well respected, and sexually satisfied, I'm okay. But what is it that we see in the Lord Jesus in the wilderness? What is he? He's thirsty. He's disrespected. (laughs) He's hungry. And He's alone. And He's okay. In Jesus, we see a better vision for human life. A vision that beginning in a new birth, delights in being the child of God and delights in going without that delights in the ministry of angels, delights to be upheld by the Lord's power. In the wilderness, we see a vulnerability, not a strength. We see weakness, not might. We see the Lord in surrender that brings victory and not the other way around. Many of you are under the impression that the way you're going to beat sin is to climb up on top of it and beat the tar out of it. Not so. The way the Christian finds victory over sin is in surrender and weakness, upheld by the ministry of angels, upheld by life in Christ. Well, finally, you see what happens. Satan makes his attack. How is the Lord sustained? Well, unlike in uh, Matthew and Luke, where Jesus quotes scripture at the enemy, Mark is a little bit more simplistic in a beautiful way. He says not by quoting Scripture, not by outwitting the devil, but by the ministry of angels. The Gnostics, as it turns out, have it all wrong. Dualism, the idea that Satan and the God of all are duking it out perpetually, Satan trying to exalt the body over the Spirit, a body which he well knows doesn't exist, according to them. God trying to exalt the Spirit over the body. All of this is patently false. Satan's opponent is truly the angelic army of God with Michael at the head. It is really too bad that the church's robust understanding of the ministry of angels has been subverted by sentimentality. Yes, precious moments, I mean you. It's garbage, actually, at the end of the day. Those little cherubs can't do jack for you. And in fact, if you ever saw the cherubim, of him, you'd freak out. The truth is that every Christian is aided in this life by a host of heavenly angels. And thanks be to God for that. You know, I often on, on Christmas Eve and other times just kind of look around the church and wonder how many angels are in here. I'll leave that to you. But they're there. And I say all of this to remind you that the earthly battle against sin is overshadowed by a cosmic struggle. The same cosmic struggle that ensued surrounding the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness. Satan waging temptation, the angels waging ministry to the Lord Jesus. You and I have the greatest possible advocate in Jesus Christ who is conquered and he sends his armies to defend us. Lent is a time, if I can put it simply, of getting serious about God. And you are not alone in this work. An old priest once said, if you get serious about God, Satan will get serious about you. No one is invulnerable to temptation. No one above grave sin. None of us is righteous. But thanks be to God that the victory does not depend on us, but has already been secured through Jesus the Lord one of the drawbacks we face in our culture today is this is this idea that one can be uh, morally righteous by simply stating the right opinions according to the right people that one can be preserved from evil and sin simply by being on the right side and this again is garbage garbage the only thing that makes you on the right side is being in Christ that's it It's not the opinions you hold. It's not what you happen to believe. It's not the political opinion you hold. It is being in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you are a member of the church. And that's the last thing to say. The church comes into sharp focus in these days through Lent and into Holy Week and then in Easter culminating in the day of Pentecost. The joy of these days is found first in a communal fast and then in a communal feast. The church realizes her vocation and identity to be the ark of salvation, because she is in Jesus Christ, in the midst of a world that is perishing, in the midst of a world that is drowning in sin. The church realizes her vocation and identity as a divine humanity, shot through with the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, The church submits, therefore, to a common discipline and a common Eucharistic and liturgical life, ever turning herself to the risen Christ in whom and from whom she gains her true life. Lent is no doubt a personal time, a deeply personal time. Some of you came here and you got your Lenten discipline all squared away and you're going to pray more and you're going to fast from things and you're going to give to the poor and that's so good. That's so good. So good. But we cannot forget or miss. That this season is a season of Christian solidarity with Christ as we walk toward Jerusalem. As we walk toward the cross, bearing up the cross, just as it is a season of solidarity with the poor and the outcast. But at the heart, this season is a time of entering into the very heart of the church to journey with her into the heart of her Lord in whom she is. If you are wondering what the most basic church discipline of Lent is, it's rather simple, and I want to recount it to you with a list. I don't usually use lists in preaching, but I will today. The first, and I want to commend all of these to you, it's so important. The first is to keep the church's disciplines of fasting. Fasting including fasting on Good Friday, which means that if you're able and young enough or old enough to abstain from all food on Good Friday until the sun goes down, to abstain from flesh meat on Fridays. If you're not in the habit of keeping a Friday fast for meat, take it up. It'll do you some good. And as well, being sure to receive the Eucharist and find rest on Sundays By way of a reminder, the Sundays in Lent are precisely that, Sundays in Lent. When I was a little kid, I used to look at the calendar and count the days, and I thought, these don't add up. What's going on here? And finally some priest told me, oh, well, the Sundays don't count. And I said, does that mean I can have chocolate? He said, yes, it does. (laughs) I know that some of you rejoice in Sundays because you'll have a glass of whiskey or whatever it is, and I do the same. But he also raises the opportunity To feast in ways that you can, to attend the Eucharist on Wednesdays, to fast perhaps on Wednesdays, which is something that many Christ Church parishioners have taken on as a discipline, not just during Lent, but permanently. The second is to make a sacramental confession in the time before Easter. And while this is not required, I do want to say that if you're struggling with sin, the answer is not to keep struggling. The answer is to surrender that sin and surrender your life at the foot of the cross and to do so with the church's help. I know that the priests of Christ church join me in saying that we will go out of our way literally to make this available to you. I mean, if you call me at three o'clock in the morning and say, Father, I need to make my confession, I'll say, I'll meet you on my porch. It's that simple. We prepare for this, firstly, by making our own confessions. And I will tell you, I made mine a week and a half ago so that this could be done. The third is to attend to the church's common Lenten devotion, especially through weekly even song on Wednesdays, followed by Bible study, then stations of the cross on Fridays. If you do not have a Lenten discipline, just take on the disciplines of the parish. And fourth, to give alms with the church and through the church. Meaning not only giving what you've said you'd give to the parish for her ministry and mission, but also to give to the poor, especially to orphans and widows. This Lent's might box offering will be used to support, as we did in Advent, Yazidi orphans and widows living in northern Iraq. This past week, I received a wonderful report on this ministry from Father Jerry, who's headed. He came back to Texas for a funeral this week, but he said there's been a great Advent of hope and uh, and and good good promise in the camp. Uh, people are recovering from trauma. And we're also told that there are 18 people in the camp we visited in 2019 who are preparing to be baptized. This is good work. And it thrives with our support. Lastly, I want to say that I'm praying for you as you walk through this journey of Lent. I'm praying that you'll have a truly blessed Lent full of repentance, prayer, and spiritual disciplines. Lived out in ex- expectation of our risen Lord in whom you and I and the whole church was raised. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.